Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway. In 1970, a woman using the pseudonym Jane Rowe filed a lawsuit against the district attorney of Dallas County, Henry Wade. That Texas lawsuit was decided by the Supreme Court three years later. Here's a report for ABC News on January 22, 1973, when the decision was handed down. The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. The 7-2 ruling to that effect will probably result in a drastic overhaul of state laws on abortion. The court's decision in Roe v. Wade affirmed a constitutional right to privacy and asserted the legal right to obtain an abortion before viability, which is at about 23 weeks of pregnancy. Here is more from attorney Sarah Weddington, who represented the woman known as Jane Roe. We are once again before this court to ask relief against the continued enforcement of the Texas abortion statute and ask that you affirm the ruling of the three-judge court below, which held our statute unconstitutional for two reasons. The first, that it was vague, and the second, that it interfered with the Ninth Amendment right of a woman to determine whether or not she would continue or terminate a pregnancy. Now, nearly 50 years later, the state of Texas and the Supreme Court are once again at the center of the battle over abortion. On Wednesday, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the United States went into effect in the Lone Star State. Called SB8, it bans most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. And because most people are unaware that they are pregnant until six weeks, this law effectively bans abortions. The law also provides private citizens with the right to sue anyone who provides or aids people in getting an abortion. And this includes everyone from the doctor who performs it to the Uber driver who brings the patient to a clinic. Abortion providers in Texas filed an emergency appeal against the law, but late on Wednesday, the Supreme Court blocked that appeal. For more on this, Let's speak with two abortion providers in Texas. Dr. Pavit Kumar is a staff physician for Planned Parenthood Center for Choice in Houston. Dr. Kumar, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And also here is Dr. Ghazala Moyedi, an OBGYN and abortion provider in Texas and board member with Physicians for Reproductive Health. Dr. Moyedi, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Moyedi, before we get into the specifics of this new law. Can you just walk us through your experience as an abortion provider in Texas? Up until this week, it was a very joyful job, but this week has been incredibly devastating to be a provider here, to be a mom here, to be a human here. Talk us just a bit through the pandemic and the ways that over the course of now nearly two years, um, it may have impeded access to reproductive care um, in the broadest sense um, for your patients. Yes. You know, Texas at the beginning of the pandemic shut down abortion services for a month and providers like Dr. Kumar and I were scrambling to get patients care and show up for people where they needed us. It took us several months to be able to catch up to the backlog of people needing care. All of this during a pandemic, you know, trying to figure out what was safe, how to keep our staff safe, how to keep patients safe. And 
so providers in the state have been through a lot. We've been just struggling every single day to find new ways, better ways, innovative ways to get people care through everything that's been happening. Dr. Kumar, I am... Um I'm struck by Dr. Moyeti talking about um, this experience of providing reproductive care, pregnancy care, and abortion as a joyful job, as a, as a job of, of care, right? Using that language again and again. Does that align with your experience? Yes, absolutely. I've been in Texas now providing abortion care for about six and a half years, and it's really a core part of my existence. I think you know, as a physician, what brings me joy is taking care of people, and that includes providing abortions, seeing people who need help, and then being able to help them, making them feel better, being compassionate, being nice. Those are the things that, you know, bring me joy and pride in my job as a physician. That includes when I provide abortions for people. And I think uh, the staff that I work with shares a very similar sentiment. It's a very sacred thing for me. And of course, when it's sort of taken away from us, like, it is now under Senate Bill 8, it's just as difficult to deal with because we're left helpless and we can't do what we're here to do. Dr. Moyeti, can you remind us again what is actually in this law, SB 8? Yes. So this law does not impose criminal penalties on physicians or the person seeking an abortion themselves. Rather, it allows for civil lawsuits against physicians, nurses, healthcare staff, anyone at the clinic or anyone helping someone get an abortion, but also anyone intending to help someone get an abortion. So the law is very vague. It removes some of the civil procedure requirements in Texas court. So it removes what is called standing. Now, I definitely wish I was a physician that did not know this much about the law at this point. But typically in Texas, you have to prove that you've been injured in some way to bring a civil lawsuit against someone. But this law has removed that very basic standard and it allows anyone related to the patient or not to bring a lawsuit forward. And so it is 100% intended to intimidate us out of doing our ethical duty and caring for our community. Dr. Kumar, does the law apply to both surgical and medical abortions? And maybe also just for some of our listeners who may not know the difference, can you kind of walk us through surgical versus medical abortion? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Senate Bill 8, the law that we're talking about is a very gnarly law there are very few, if any, exceptions. And of course, that includes any abortion, whether it's a medication abortion or a procedural abortion. And just briefly, the differences with those two are that a medication abortion involves pills uh, that somebody can take. And part of the process is at home where folks may feel more comfortable. It's very effective. It's very safe versus what we call a procedural abortion or what some folks may know as a surgical abortion which is a procedure that takes place in the clinic at the health center with me as their doctor, perhaps, and nurses and other staff, but it doesn't take place at home. And that is also extremely effective and extremely safe. So patients have the option of choosing whatever is best for them. But unfortunately, under Senate Bill 8, either one would not be allowed in Texas if cardiac motion could be detected. Dr. Moghetti, how would anyone know if someone else had a private medical procedure or surgical procedure? How would someone know that someone has sought an abortion? Well, the scary part is, is that these extremists actually camp out outside of our clinics every single day. And they take pictures of staff. They take pictures of patients. They write down our license plates. 
They already have an expansive infrastructure across the country for surveillance and harassment of abortion clinic workers and abortion seekers. So how they would know is through their <laughs> expansive surveillance infrastructure that they already have in place. Let me ask a, a follow-up to that. What if someone maybe who has a private physician goes into, say, a university hospital and sees their private physician and, and, and is either prescribed the, the pills necessary for a medical uh, a, a abortion or is actually given, say, a DNC, a, a surgical procedure? Does that mean that basically it's only those who can be surveilled who are most vulnerable here? Yes. Yeah, so we're unclear right now who they're going to bring suits against and how. Um, but yeah, it is unlikely that a private family physician or OBGYN in their office that is providing um, just individuals in their practice care is going to be found out. Um, but it's also important to remember that in Texas, your regular physician is not technically usually allowed to provide abortion care to you. And so our state has already been regulated to the point that pretty much all abortion care happens within our known clinical settings. Uh, so if, yeah, so they have already, they've already thought of that. They've filtered us down to a few spots where um, most, if not all abortions in the state happen. So Dr. Kamara, I'm struck again, Dr. Moyeti said that the primary purpose of this law is to intimidate and frighten. Are you feeling intimidated and frightened? Certainly, yeah. And I, I totally agree with Dr. Moyeti that to your question before about how would you know or what happens if this, that, the other. And I think just asking those questions is what this law is designed to do, right? It's designed to have folks who may need access to abortion, folks who provide abortion to think about every little thing that could happen and how somebody could find out if you want to continue providing the care that you've been providing and make people feel fear and feel intimidated. So I think even having this conversation and sort of working through these questions and of course the last few months about all the what ifs and how and who and where and what's going to happen, the amount of energy and time that's been put into that is exactly what this law or part of it is designed to do. So feeling fear and intimidation is not a new thing for us that do this work in Texas or places like Texas. We're, we're used to it. It doesn't make it easy, um, but it's part of the work here. And I think naming it is part of getting around it. So of course, the fear is there. I, I feel it all the time, but I don't allow the fear to control me. It doesn't serve me. It doesn't help me or the people that I'm trying to take care of. But it's there. And I think some of us feel the fear differently and perhaps more heavily. But for me, the fear is there, but I try to move through it and, and recognize that it doesn't serve me. Dr. Moyeti, how does having this bounty uh, essentially placed on, on your heads affect physicians' capacity to get insurance in the state of Texas? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we all started grappling with very early on after this law was passed. So um, for now, thankfully, it seems like this is not a malpractice issue at all because it is a civil proceeding. And so currently it has not affected our malpractice carriers. However, it's certainly a concern and I think something that was on their mind in this process. But since it is a civil procedure and it doesn't have anything to do with um, actually with medical care, it is so far out of our purview of our malpractice insurers. But 
that remains to be seen what will happen. I don't know what will happen if we start getting dozens and dozens of these frivolous lawsuits. What are state medical boards going to say? What are the insurance companies going to say after that? What will the hospitals say that we have privileges at? There is a just endless spiral of thinking through the con- the career consequences of multiple frivolous lawsuits. Dr. Pavit Kumar is a staff physician for Planned Parenthood Center for Choice in Houston. And Dr. Gazala Moyeti is an OBGYN and abortion provider in Texas and board member with Physicians for Reproductive Health. Thank you both for joining us and thank you both for your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. At midnight on Wednesday, the Supreme Court of the United States effectively overturned Roe v. Wade. In a 5-4, page-and-a-half, unsigned decision delivered without the court receiving briefings or hearing arguments. In a move that legal scholars undoubtedly will teach as a particularly insidious act of judicial activism, the nation's highest court let stand a Texas law, which, based on decades of binding precedent, is inarguably unconstitutional. Here with me is Mary Ziegler, law professor at Florida State University and author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Mary, welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks for having me. So I did some legal analysis there. I am not myself an attorney. So let's first check my analysis. Does this law in Texas have components which do seem to counter legal constitutional precedent of the court itself? Yeah, absolutely. So Texas has banned abortion at six weeks um, before most people know they're pregnant. And that's in pretty much direct contravention of of Roe v. Wade in the cases following it, which say that there's a right to choose abortion before viability, which is usually around the 24th week. How Texas has tried to get around that, and this has been, I think, the Supreme Court has let that go with a wink, is by saying that Texas has sovereign immunity from a constitutional challenge. Now, this doctrine protects states from challenges unless you sue the state official who's charged with enforcing the unconstitutional law. Texas has tried to get around this by writing into its law that no state officials can enforce the law. The only people who can are these sort of bounty hunters. Quite literally, any person who wants to bring a lawsuit can sue either an abortion provider or someone who aids or abets in the language of the statute, someone seeking an abortion. So Texas has said, you know, there's no one for you to sue. You can't bring this constitutional challenge in federal court. And five justices in the Supreme Court uh, bought that argument, I think, in part because they don't really believe abortion is a constitutional right. So let's walk through that aspect of it for just a bit more so that so that we can have a, a clear understanding of kind of the legal aspect here. So as we heard from some providers in our earlier conversation, um, there are no criminal pe- penalties associated with this. These become civil penalties. But what it does seem to do is to remove what had previously been a requirement in Texas state law that in order to sue for a civil um, uh, case that you had to have standing. It basically gives everybody standing. Now, doesn't that have much broader repercussions um, sort of in the the legal system beyond um, abortion itself? And I'm wondering if that then becomes a basis um, for for a suit. 
Absolutely. I mean, Texas's law doesn't just change the rules on standing. It changes the entire functioning of the legal system when it comes to civil suits. It changes who gets attorney's fees if they lose. It changes where you can be sued. It changes when abortion providers have third party standing. And as you mentioned, it, it allows people to sue and they have absolutely nothing to do with the abortion in question. And that could set if the Supreme Court is going to sign off on this law, there's no stopping really any state from passing a law that doesn't end run around other constitutional rights. Now, I think we've seen so far commentators worrying primarily about things like the right to vote or the right to freedom of speech. But of course, progressive states could adopt this strategy, for example, when it comes to the right to bear arms. Mm. So I don't know if the court has recognized what kind of a Pandora's box it might be opening, but this could have pretty negative and wild consequences on the legal system, you know, across the board. Now, explain to us why the court even had the opportunity to hand down this weird midnight decision. I mean, this wasn't a fully decided and presented case, right? That's still working its way through. That's a Mississippi case. What was going on here that, that allowed the court to speak on this? So the, this is part of what uh, scholars call the court's shadow docket. So we are the most familiar with cases, as you mentioned, that are part of the, the merits docket that get oral argument and briefing. The shadow docket was supposed to handle sort of uncontroversial stuff, like a party says, we need more time to file our brief, or there's an emergency petition and every reasonable person agrees there's no emergency. It was supposed to, to handle that kind of thing. But during the Trump administration, the shadow docket grew exponentially and it began handling more and more controversial things. So, for example, disputes about the border wall, uh, disputes about COVID stay-at-home orders and in-person church attendance. And all of these orders, strikingly, as you mentioned, are decided without briefing, without argument, often in the middle of the night, often without even the kind of legal reasoning we got in this order or a sense of who voted how. So this is actually, relatively speaking, uh, you know, a beacon of clarity compared to some of the stuff we're getting on the shadow docket. And it's disturbing, of course, because the Supreme Court isn't elected. There's no way of change unless we have court reform doing much to hold the justices accountable. The closest thing we have to accountability is public reaction to what the justices are saying. And that, of course, requires the justices to say something, right, to offer an explanation of what they did and why they did it. And the shadow docket allows them to sort of escape from that kind of accountability. So are there any legal pathways now for opponents of the Texas law? Well, as you mentioned, there's still challenges playing out even to this law in the federal courts. Um, this was uh, very early in litigation. I, I don't feel good about the odds of those challenges because we've seen from both the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Intermediate Appellate Court, and the Supreme Court that they don't seem to think there's any kind of problem with this law. There are state challenges that are proceeding. Those are narrower. They tend to be focused on whether specific plaintiffs can bring challenges. There's the possibility that some abortion provider or quote unquote aider and abetter violates the law and then can argue that it's unconstitutional actually in practice as applied to them versus sort of in general in the abstract, which was the challenge that was brought earlier. But of course, most people aren't in Texas aren't going to want to do that because they're not going to want to face thousands of dollars in liability in the prospect of having to pay that and attorney's fees. But th those are the most realistic routes. I think the, the long and short of it is that it's not easy to imagine a challenge to the Texas law 
as a whole. And it's not easy to see either short of court reform how Democrats in Congress or in the White House will be able to do much about this law. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at Florida State University and the author of several books on the topic of abortion. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Texas anti-abortion law and the Supreme Court decision keeping it in place have outraged, frightened, and distressed many across the country. We wanted to hear from you about how this law and others like it are affecting your lives and to hear about the actions that some of you are taking in response. And here's what you had to say. This is Jen in Austin, Texas. I uh, spent this morning looking up urologists so that I could get a vasectomy for my partner. And while I was calling around, I found out that the Planned Parenthood closest to me is closed. So looks like the vasectomy is where we need to go since women's services are very limited. This is going to get people killed. I don't know how we fight back against it. I'm just angry. Glenn Nickerson, Dallas, Texas. I think that Texas abortion law is depraved and nonsensical. Claim to care about the sanctity of life, but we have a high rate of uninsured, unvaccinated, underpaid, ill-housed, and armed citizenry. Voting will not be enough. Gonna continue to engage with those I interact with to change hearts and minds empathetically and encourage like-minded others to do the same, but I envision a very long slog. This is Deborah. I'm in Cascade in Colorado. The Texas anti-abortion rights law won't affect my life directly, but I'm urging everyone I know to stop doing any kind of business in Texas or with companies that are located there. I can't believe that the majority of Texans are in agreement with such a draconian measure. They need to step into the 21st century. This is Melissa calling from San Jose, California. I will teach my 16-year-old daughter that she cannot take her right to abortion for granted. I will teach her to advocate for our rights by engaging with abortion rights groups and women's reproductive rights groups, by participating alongside her in abortion rights marches and rallies, by reminding her she will have a voice with her vote in two years. I will remind her that she cannot be complacent. I will teach her how to channel her anger into meaningful action. And I hope to show by example, I'm angry too. In Moorhead, Minnesota, we are right on the North Dakota border, and the only abortion clinic available to me is in Fargo, North Dakota. North Dakota has already announced that it's planning to enact a Texas-like law. Frankly, I'm afraid. (laughs) Pregnancy could kill me due to health issues. Plus, I really don't want children, and I don't ever want to be pregnant. The Texas anti-abortion law does not affect me and its purpose except in the way it flouts our American rule of law. And that makes me angry. I am not a single-issue voter, but next year I will be. I will not see our rule of law undermined in this way. This is Barbara in San Jose. Hi, my name is Danny from Rockaway. I will never visit the state of Texas, nor will I buy products from companies based in Texas. And my daughter is not allowed to consider universities in that state. That way we can avoid their ridiculousness. Hello, this is Reverend Nand Baker, and I'm in horror. 
I remember pre-1971. I have worked in favor of reproductive rights for 50 years. This is devastating. As a Texan, this law makes me sick. This ban disproportionately affects low-income women and those who help them, and I don't know where to go from here. And my name is Molly, and I'm from Louisville, Texas. Thanks to all of you called in, and we want to keep hearing from you about the actions you're taking to respond to this restrictive abortion law. Call and leave us a message at 877-869-8253. You're back with The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I was born in October 1973, and although she didn't know it at the time, my mother was pregnant with me on the day the Roe v. Wade decision affirmed the constitutional right to obtain an abortion. She was unmarried, a graduate student, and already a single mother. My mom chose to carry her pregnancy to term. She chose. She chose. And it was a choice she'd been fighting for for years as a young reproductive rights advocate. This is my mom. Diana Gray. From 1969 to 1971, my mom was a graduate student at the University of Washington in Seattle, divorced and already mother to my older sister, Elizabeth. She was also a bit of a repo rights badass. Washington State made it legal in 1973 years before Roe versus Wade. So we um, put together a booklet on... Um, guiding people through birth control, abortion, and venereal disease issues. And it included a lot of contacts in it to help people on campus um, understand better their their access to sexual health care. And y'all, don't let the prim and proper little old lady voice make you underestimate my mom, her friends, or the work they were doing. The title of my booklet was How to Have Intercourse Without Getting Screwed, A Guide to Birth Control, Abortion, and Venereal Disease. (laughs) Okay, Mama. Now, I asked what she and her fellow students were doing to help women gain access to abortion. We developed a safe house system. So we had a hotline staffed by volunteers in our group. We also had host, volunteer host homes. We had volunteer transportation assistance. And we had providers that were willing to provide uh, the abortions for the out-of-towners. So when someone needs an abortion, they call the hotline, they got the information they need, and they got connected with a volunteer that would meet them either at the bus station or the train station and transport them to the host home. Another volunteer would take them in for the procedure and stay with them and then return them to the host home where they would remain for another 24 hours while they were monitored to make sure there were no um, side effects or, you know, fevers or anything like that. Then they were transported back to their uh, source of transportation, in most cases the bus station or the train station. Following in her footsteps, I've worked as a clinic guard volunteer, helping people seek abortions by walking safely through the gauntlet of angry protesters at the clinic door, But the work that my mom was doing, that took a different kind of courage. And I asked if she was nervous. 
No, I actually loved it. We were kind of breaking the law because the law was intended for residents of Washington State. And in some cases, people were. But um, if they weren't, they used our address and telephone number when they registered for an abortion. Born in 1973, abortion has been legal my entire life. I've always known that I could choose. I could choose. Now, before I've even reached my 48th birthday, I may have to tell my daughters they no longer have that right. So I couldn't end our conversation without asking my mom about the new anti-abortion law in Texas. I absolutely had a gut-level reaction because I thought, oh my goodness, they have made this law such that even uh, the kinds of things that we were doing, we would be subject to prosecution. And it, that's just, it just made me sick. The, the only thing I can think of is maybe people in adjacent states would have some compassion and provide this help for the women of Texas until they can get this strained out, because it's just appalling. Thanks to Diana Gray, my mom, for sharing her story and for modeling what it looks like to have compassion. And this reminder, there's no progress without struggle. There's no lasting victory without meaningful defeats. And we find strength for the continuing struggle by looking to our past. Here to reveal the strength-giving stories of the long struggle for abortion access is Laura Kaplan, author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Welcome to The Takeaway, Laura. Thank you, Melissa. Tell our listeners what the Jane Network uh, was and, and what it meant to countless women back in the day. Well, this was the very early days of the women's liberation movement and groups all over the country were forming um, counseling services to help women navigate the often dangerous uh, underground abortion uh, system. System is a weird word. <laughs> and that's how Jane started as well. We were formerly known as the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation in Chicago. You um, just used the first person plural there, we. Tell us how you were involved. I joined the group in the group started in 1969. I joined in the fall of 1971. So we started just sussing out the underground abortion providers in the city of Chicago to find the ones that were the most reputable, um, honest and competent and to prepare women uh, for their experience and send them off to these providers. But what was unusual about Jane was within two years, and really by the time I joined in the fall of 1971, the women in the group had learned themselves how to perform DNC abortions and induced miscarriages. So we became a completely women-run underground abortion service in the city of Chicago, working out of our own apartments, our friends' apartments, uh, preparing women in advance, sharing information as much as we could share. I mean, you don't remember, but in those days, there was very little information available. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, how we 
evolved. And we estimate we performed in our four years um, approximately 11,000 or more illegal, safe, illegal, low-cost abortions for women in Chicago and the surrounding area. Can you share with us the stories of even one um, person who you provided, you or the J Network provided care for in this way? What were the reasons that women were seeking abortions? Well, we never asked women uh, because we didn't feel that that was an important question or uh, one they needed to share with us why they were seeking an abortion. For some women, I mean, I, I, it's a long, it's 50 years ago and it's mm-hmm. hard to remember individual cases. Uh, but for some women, it was, you know, there was a, an accident with their birth control. Well, I'll tell you the story of a friend of mine. She had an IUD implanted and it was implanted incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And she wound up pregnant while she was still in college. So that that's one case. Some were women who had had a number of children already and just could not see their way to having another child. Some were in very controlling relationships where they weren't allowed to use by their partner, allowed to use birth control. So the, the reasons were myriad, but like I said, the reasons didn't matter to us. Mm-hmm. If a woman really wanted an abortion and felt she needed one, that was good enough for us. And you have to remember, once they contacted us, they were entering an illegal arena. And uh, what we realized was the women who came to us were just desperate because here they were coming to total strangers uh, to help them with this problem. How did you get your message out to people, given that it did have to be covert? So uh, we did some advertising, you know, little posters that were put around in in uh, college dormitories and payphone booths. Remember payphones? You might not. Uh, that said, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane with our phone number. I mean, and you have to remember, this is, there was no technology. I mean, I didn't have an answering machine. There weren't answering machines. So it was all very uh, much like that. We took out ads in underground newspapers, but very rapidly, our phone number and information about us spread throughout Chicago. And um, also the Women's Liberation Union in Chicago had a phone number and a lot of women called there to get our phone number. So by the time I joined, we were so inundated with calls that we didn't need to do any advertising. And especially our information spread throughout uh, the primarily Black communities on the south and west side of Chicago. How do you react to the current Texas abortion bill law? I'm just outraged and horrified and... uh, I, I, I can't even I can't even express um, exactly how outraged and <laughs> horrified I, I am. I, I see in this law not only the six week limit, but the bounty for turning in others um, sort of echoes of 
Nazi Germany when young people were encouraged to inform on their teachers, their neighbors, even their parents. I mean, it, it just reeks to me. Laura Kaplan, author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. So let's go ahead and head north to New Jersey, where a coalition of organizations known as Thrive New Jersey are working to expand access to reproductive and sexual health care in the state. In October of 2020, Thrive New Jersey worked with state legislators to introduce the Reproductive Freedom Act, which would protect and expand access to birth control and pregnancy-related care, including abortion. The bill has been stalled in the legislature for almost a year now. But after Texas's restrictive abortion law went into effect this week, there's been a new push for New Jersey's legislature to take action. Here's New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy at a press conference on Wednesday. Texas ban does concern me, very much so. It's what we had anticipated could happen. And remember the reproductive freedoms. I don't want to get into politics, or, but the fact of the matter is protecting women's health here, which is why we need to, uh, as soon as possible, put this protection uh, into statute. And we are, I'm strongly uh, supportive of that and want to have that happen sooner than later. Governor Murphy called on the state legislature to pass the Reproductive Freedom Act. However, the legislature is currently in recess until after the November 2nd election. Caitlin Wojewicz is the Vice President of Public Affairs at Planned Parenthood Action Fund of New Jersey, which is part of the Thrive New Jersey Coalition. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I'm thrilled to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the bill will expand reproductive health care in New Jersey? So, of course, we know that this bill puts into statute the right to reproductive health care, including abortion. However, it also expands access in a few key ways. It removes financial barriers by mandating insurance coverage for abortion and without cost sharing or co-pays, which is really key. It also allows for the prescribing of up to 12 months of birth control, which I think we can agree during a pandemic would have been fantastic to have. It also removes some medically unnecessary regulations that we have here in New Jersey. They exist at a board level. It's called the Board of Medical Examiners, and that really dictates who and where an abortion can be provided by. And so we wanna see those regulations lifted, which would allow for more providers, such as advanced practice clinicians, nurse practitioners, uh, physician's assistants, to be able to provide the procedure of an abortion in a health center setting. And it also expands a fund that is already in existence that is for folks who cannot access Medicaid or don't have insurance, which is obviously largely undocumented neighbors and family and friends of ours. And so those folks would be able to utilize this fund, which would already covers labor and delivery and prenatal care services uh, and birth control, but it would allow this fund to also pay for abortion for those folks. So they have the full range of reproductive health care options. Help us understand um, the ways that the Texas restrictive abortion law, but also particularly the Supreme Court's late night page and a half response to it. Um, and then, of course, the Mississippi case that it's working its way into the court's full um, full docket. How might that affect what's going on in New Jersey with the Reproductive Freedom Act? You know, I just first have to say that uh, our hearts here in New Jersey are with the, the people of Texas, the women of Texas. Um, 
at this time, and we are obviously very concerned about this. Unfortunately, we, we, we see what's going on with the Supreme Court as just another piece of the puzzle that has been falling into place for, for years now. We've seen a record number of state-level abortion restrictions across the country over the past few years. And so this is just the, the final step that we knew was eventually going to be coming. So we've been talking about the threat to Roe v. Wade, which to be clear, is the floor and, and not the ceiling. It, it provides rights, but you know we're really trying to achieve access here in New Jersey, um, as well as the right to abortion. And so, we're really seeing um, people be motivated and mobilized, um, and we're hopeful that while this is a tragic moment for the women of Texas, that here in New Jersey, people will see that uh, we we're not making up this threat that exists to reproductive health care, and they'll feel motivated to take action and protect the people of New Jersey by passing the Reproductive Freedom Act. So why has the bill been stalled in the legislature for so long? You know, Melissa, I think it's a few things. I think um, it partially has to do with it being introduced during a pandemic. Um, we introduced in October of 2020, and, and obviously the pandemic is still ongoing. Um, in New Jersey, the the winter and uh, early spring and into the summer are taken up by budget, which is a big piece. And while we were really pushing for the bill to be heard and for that to be done before they took a break, um, it it unfortunately did not happen by the end of June. So, which is why we're still waiting now until November. Um, at the same time, while uh, you know the calendar did not work in our favor in some measure. We also know that there's a lot of abortion stigma out there. And that even includes folks who are pro-choice uh, legislators who you know, will want to vote for this legislation. Um, it's just unfortunate that there is so much stigma and misinformation out there. And we're not, you know, even proponents of safe, legal, accessible abortion uh, can get caught up in that and it's unfortunate. You know, as you talk about the that issue of stigma, it, it strikes me that it it is um, almost unique, not entirely unique, but almost unique um, uh, to abortion procedures that um, there may be some stigma around the use of, of um, contraception, for example, um, among, you know, some communities uh, where there are beliefs against it. But but nothing is quite like um, just sort of proclaiming openly, right? I've had an abortion or, you know, I'm sorry, I need to take time off of work. I'm terminating a pregnancy, you know, in ways that simply aren't like um, other medical procedures. Is there a kind of cultural win, um, no matter what happens with the uh, the law, as long as that stigma stays in place? You know, I think that we will go a long way towards ending a lot of the stigma that exists by passing the Reproductive Freedom Act, quite honestly, because what we're really trying to do in with this bill, with not just the text of the bill, but the way we talk about the bill and truly the way we believe this bill is crafted is to say abortion is health care. Reproductive health care is health care. And as we all know, health care is a human right. What gives you hope right now? in this space, the reproductive justice space? You know, I I draw a lot of hope from seeing the tireless advocacy across the country of other folks who are in this fight with us. I also draw my strength and my hope 
from the patients who visit Planned Parenthood health centers and, and other health centers across the state. I know that we're working to ensure that everyone who needs access to reproductive health care, regardless of their income, their zip code, their immigration or insurance status, is going to be able to get the health care that they need. And that has always been, I can speak for myself, my North Star in this fight. And the reason I continue to do this work, even when it's hard, because I'm really, I love the Garden State. I love New Jersey. And I want to make sure that everyone here has access to the health care they need, if that's abortion, birth control, pregnancy-related care, so that we can all live healthy, fulfilling, and sustainable lives. Caitlin Wojtowicz, who is Vice President of Public Affairs at Planned Parenthood Action Fund of New Jersey. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have for you today. And we want to thank you for sticking with us for this important and sometimes difficult conversation. It's pretty clear our nation is going to continue grappling with the issue of abortion. And as we do, we're going to have to figure out some way to talk to one another. Right here at The Takeaway, we've had to navigate tough conversations and differing viewpoints about how to cover this issue responsibly and with nuance and in a way that serves you, our listeners. So today, we asked all of our experts, healthcare providers, and activists about how they approach conversations with those who oppose abortion. And here's what they told us. Starting out by listening helps because often people who are opposed to abortion or reproductive rights come to that position from some kind of personal experience. Sometimes it's religion, but sometimes it may be someone who had a particularly difficult pregnancy that changed the way they feel. When I approach learners, I really ask them to take out the sensationalist imagery around abortion and to really think about the person in front of them. Empathy helps even if you don't come to an agreement. I think people often have more productive conversations when they feel heard. Those conversations can be difficult. I think in engaging in those conversations, my first assessment is, is this person open to hearing something different? But for folks who are open to hearing more and learning more, um, I think the way to have those conversations with is with shared values, right? What do you value? Um, what is important to you? Uh, and then bringing in the humanity in people who access abortion and can't be pregnant, the humanity in people like me and Dr. Moyeti who provide abortion care in places like Texas, because at the end of the day, there are real people, there are real stories. Try to meet folks where they're at. Find a common value that we share together whether that's access to healthcare or dignity, personal decision-making, and then try to see if we can talk with someone and explain where our position is. What lessons can we learn there as far as common ground goes? So take some lessons from these folks who are on the ground doing this work. And also let me shout out the brilliant team who puts together this show every day. Ethan Oberman is our senior producer. Jackie Martin is our line producer. Meg Dalton, Lydia McMillan-Laird, Shanta Covington, and Katarina Barton are our producers. Vince Fairchild is our engineer and board operator. Jake Howitt is our director and sound designer. David Gable is our executive assistant. Zachary Bynum is our digital editor. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. 
Thanks for having the conversations. Thanks for fighting it out, all of us together. And thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. 